This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. This is Case Closed. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me this Wednesday. Our hour of old-time radio crime begins with Tales of the Texas Rangers this week. We'll hear their story from November 5th, 1950, titled The White Suit. After that, it's Whitehall 1212 and the murder of Peter Amory. That episode aired February 24th, 1952. The National Broadcasting Company presents Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers. Tonight, transcribed from Hollywood, another authentic reenactment of a case from the files of the Texas Rangers. of the Texas Rangers, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. Texas, more than 260,000 square miles. And 50 men who make up the most famous and oldest law enforcement body in North America. of the Texas Rangers come these stories based on fact. Only names, dates, and places are fictitious for obvious reasons. The events themselves are a matter of record. Case for tonight, The White Suit. It is 6 a.m., June 23, 1947. There is only one prisoner in the Live Oak County Jail. He is John Elliott Bascom, a notorious and dangerous gunman. In the anteroom connecting the jail with the sheriff's office, Deputy George Keaton dozes, snoring at the end of a long and uneventful night's duty. Miss George! Miss George! Oh... Oh, hello, Uncle Ben. You still here? Yes, sir. Yeah, but that prosecutor's office down the hall was powerful dirty. About ready to go along home now as soon as I hang up my mask, but I brewed this here coffee for you. Coffee? Put it here. Oh! <laughs> She's hot, Jonah. Uh, coffee. Uncle Ben, you're an angel. <laughs> Don't know about that, Miss Jones. Ain't nobody else feed my wing. <laughs> Just put the pot and cup in my closet when you're through. I'll take care of them when I come on tonight. Sure thank you, Uncle Ben. Yeah, hey, hey, what? Hey, jailer! What's the matter with you now, Bascom? Take a look! The cell floor's wet! Water's running all over! This jail may have all the comforts of home, but I wouldn't give you much for your blood! Well, this building's so old, it's a wonder it doesn't all come apart. Bell must have stuck oh, yeah. again. Water all over the floor. All right, all oh, right. I'll take it easy. What a crummy job. You keep back, Bascom. Don't worry. You can do the waiting. I'm not putting my feet down in that water. Stay there in your bunk. I'll see what's the matter. Yeah. Let's see what's wrong with it. Why, you... Your undershirt stuffed in the drain. Yeah. Oh, you Get away from that gun, Jeffrey! Sheriff Chris Olson discovered the bodies of his night deputy and the courthouse janitor when he came into his office at 8 o'clock. He immediately telephoned the Texas Rangers, and a short time later, Ranger Jace Pearson arrived. Jace Pearson. Am I glad to see you? It's been quite a while, Sheriff. Chase, this is a bad thing. Anything involving Bascom is. You got any line on him yet? No. Apparently he slipped out of town afoot. We don't even know what direction he took. Probably east up Rocky Valley. That's the quickest way into open country. Ranger Harris was ordered out on this assignment with me. Oh, where is he? I dropped him with a walkie-talkie at Two Mile Bridge on the way in. He's riding through the brush now, cutting for a trail. We ought to find out pretty soon if Bascom's still afoot. And if he isn't? Now, the highway patrol's already closed the main roads into this area. As soon as we get a localization, mounted units will move in and attempt to close the gaps. We'll get him, Sheriff. Well, I sure hope so. Oh, excuse me. Sheriff's office, Olson speaking. Sheriff, this is Bob McDougal out on Route 7. 
A man just stole my truck out of the field where I was working. You got a description? But I didn't get a very good look at him. He was clear across the field. A medium-sized fellow wearing a pair of white coveralls, headed toward Prado. What kind of truck? A red half-ton pickup, 46 model. Anything else to identify it? Well, it's kind of beat up. A grill's broken out in front. I think that's enough for us, McDougal. You know who it was? I think so. But you better get in as soon as you can and file a theft report, just the same. Farmer's truck was stolen about eight miles out of Route 7. It's Bascom, all right, Jace. White coveralls. Yeah, those jail suits sure show up. Come on, my unit's out front. We'll get this on the radio as we roll. Racing out of town on Route 7 with my double horse trailer still coupled, I radioed all units to be on the lookout for the truck. Then I contacted Ranger Harris through his walkie-talkie and asked him to meet us at Two Mile Bridge. He was there when we arrived. Nice timing, Ed. What's up, Chase? Got a line on Bascom. Let's get your horse loaded in with charcoal. Okay, Bascom's still afoot? No. He grabbed himself a truck about eight miles down the road. Yeah, he would. This side's clear, Chase. Watch your toes. Charcoal, you got company. In you go, boy. Better bring the walkie-talkie up front with you, Ed. Got it. Ready? Heave! All snug. Come on. Sheriff Olson, meet Ranger Harris. Howdy, Sheriff. Howdy, Ranger. So, that's your walkie-talkie, is it? Well, not much to it. Yeah, pretty contact, all right. Hangs right on the saddle. You can keep in touch with your headquarters with him? At Austin? No, no. Practical range about five miles. Closer the better. Strictly a field outfit. Oh, I see. All set? Maybe we can drive Mr. Bascom right into the roadblock at Dry Creek Crossroads. Sounds like you just made it. Yeah. What's the matter? Out of gas? Yeah, fill her up. Premium or regular? Anything, fill her up. You betcha. <laughs> Say, isn't this old Bob McDougal's truck? Yeah, I'm taking it into Prado. Well, he got all his repair work done at Live Oak. Not this time. Hurry it up, will you? It's trying to bubble over on me. Filler pipe must be bent. Mm-hmm. Old Max sure beats up a truck, don't he? Yeah. Best farmer in the county, but awful careless about machinery. Seems come on, like come on, wind it up. That's enough gas. Okay, Mr. Okay. You must be in a hurry. I am. You're gonna lose some time at Dry Creek. Yeah. Why? The law's got a roadblock at the crossroads for some reason or another. Combing everybody through down to the seams of their drawers. Five and two tenths. That's one thirty-one. Charge it. Hey. All right, you smart mechanic. Let's see how far that gas gets you. Radio operator. This is Jim Perry. Get me the Dry Creek store, quick. I'm sorry, that line's busy. Break in on it. The highway patrol's got a roadblock there. I want to talk to one of the officers. Is this an emergency? A smart aleck in Bob McDougal's truck just clipped me for some gas. He was in too big a hurry to be honest, and he deliberately took the wrong turn when I told him there were officers ahead. Mr. McDougal's truck, is that a red one? Sure, everybody knows that truck. A red pickup with a mechanic in white coveralls driving it. You're out on Route 7. What turn did the truck take? The crazy fool took off down the old big wash road. Tell a patrol they can box him in there. The road ends at the wash. Keep a watch on that road, Mr. Perry. That's the man they're looking for. What? It's Jack Bascom. He broke jail and killed two men at the county seat this morning. Jack Bascom? I can ring Dry Creek now. KTXA to Unit 10. KTXA to Unit 10. Unit 10 to KTXA. Go ahead, KTXA. Subject Jack Bascom refused to pay for gasoline. He turned south from Route 7 at Perry's filling station, your vicinity. That's Perry's down there at the foot of the hill. 10-4. Unit 10 approaching Perry's now. We'll keep KTXA advised. Unit 10 clear. 10-4, KTXA Austin. There's Jim Perry out in front, flagging us down now. Officer, I just got held up. Yeah, we know. For some gasoline. You know. The radio, Jim. 
Now, that's the turn he took over there? Yeah, the big wash road. How long ago? Maybe ten minutes. Pretty good start on us, Jace. Yeah, the kind of country there is down here. Let's don't let him get any more. the red pickup abandoned in the sandy bed of Big Wash four miles from the highway and radioed the surrounding units. John Bascom's tracks led straight into broken country beyond the wash. Eh, he couldn't go any further than the truck and neither can we. Looks like work for the horses from here on, Ed. Let's get them out. Right. I'll give you a hand, Jeez. Easy, boy, easy. easy. Come on, Chuck. Better get the walkie-talkie, Ed. We ought to be able to contact any unit south of Dry Creek with it pretty soon. Yeah, I believe you're right. Hey, uh, you boys leaving me a foot, Case? Uh, you can take the unit back, Sheriff. Maybe join the highway patrol at Dry Creek. Bascom's headed southwest. He probably figures to slip past the roadblocks. He might be making a wide detour over toward Highway 11. Might be. All set, Jase. Okay. Anything else I can do? Yeah, keep your fingers crossed. I will. Trailing Bascom isn't going to be any cinch for you boys. He's desperate, armed, and he knows his trails, Rick. I know. Ah, easy, boy. For good measure, I don't like the looks of those clouds over there. But all we need is a storm to wipe out what little sign he may leave. Well, let's get started, Ed. Yeah. So long, boys. Good hunting. Thanks, Sheriff. Come on, sir. Yeah. You are listening to Tales of the Texas Rangers, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. And now we continue with tonight's case, The White Suit, an authentic story from the files of the Texas Rangers. By four o'clock, Ed Harris and I were deep into the rough country south of Big Wash. We'd continually cut back and forth for Bascom's tracks, finding them and then losing them again. It was slow work covering five miles to his one while he steadily built up his lead on us. He was infernally clever. Take it easy going down here, Jace. This canyon wall was any steeper, we'd be hanging by our collars. Whoa, whoa, charcoal. Hey, wait a minute, Ed. Pull up. Whoa, boy. Whoa, now. Whoa. Now what, Jace? Bascom didn't slide down here like we thought. No? Look. There's the rock he pushed over from the rim to make the skid marks we've been following. See, it's lava, like the cap on the rim. Different from the rest of the rock down here. So we've got to climb back to the top. I'd have sworn he started down here to cross this canyon. That's what he wanted us to think. Anything to cost us time. The trouble is, we've got to follow out every one of these blind trails he's leaving us. Any one of them may be the McCoy. Yeah, he'll be to California before we ever get out of these badlands. He isn't to California yet. Don't worry, he's working as hard as we are. Up, Charlie. Lift him up. Come on, Red Hawk. Maybe I could go. Come on. Watch it, Ed. Oh, what a climb. It's getting late. Look at that sun, Jase. Yeah. Hey. That low sun has got its advantages. Oh, ooh, boy. Ooh, oh, God. now. Easy. Take a look at that slope over there across the canyon. That patch of sand past that big mesquite. Yeah, tracks, footprints. Then Bascom did cross the canyon after all. Probably someplace a little downstream. Jace, how come we didn't see those tracks when we started down here from up before? He couldn't have made them since then. We aren't that close behind him. No, the tracks were there before, we just didn't see them. Now the sun's low enough to throw longer shadows into the prince's boots made. Makes them twice as visible. Yeah, well, we better start looking for a place to cross ourselves. Now, let's climb a little higher first. I'm worried about that storm the way it's piling up. Up, Red Horse. Come on. Clouds are getting black, Jase. Probably loaded with static. We better try to make radio contact with the walkie-talkie while we can. We'll need to work from this high ground to get through. General call, Jase? Yeah. Yeah, suppose you try it now, Ed. Yeah. Unit 902 to unit in range. Unit 902 to unit in range. Unit 8 to unit 902. Go ahead, unit 902. Oh, boy. Oh. Here you are, Jase. Oh, charcoal. Unit 8 to Unit 902. Go ahead. Unit 902 requests the location of Unit 8. Unit 8 is at the intersection of County 5 and State 11, 10 miles south of Dry Creek. 
Unit 8 is now too far north. Fugitive still bearing toward Highway 11, approximately 12 miles south and east of Dry Creek. Suggest Unit 8 move south about five miles. Unit 8, 10 Unit 902 has had no direct contact with Fugitive, but is following an identifiable trail. Will report any change. Please relay to other units. Unit 902, clear. Unit 8, 10 Say, look, Jace. Vasca may stay on the other side of the canyon, or he may double back to this side. Why don't we save ourselves a lot of riding and split up for a bit? Might not be a bad idea. I'll take the canyon floor. It's sandy. Tracks will be easy to spot there. And you can work along this rim. All right. But watch yourself, Ed. You'll be in the open down there. Yeah, just let Vascom show himself once. That's all I want. Come on, Red Horse. We're going down. Easy now. Easy. Give me a chance to get to the bottom before you start, Jase. Okay. Something about a manhunt sharpens the hunter's senses. I sat on the rim for long moments watching Ed Harris descend that canyon wall, feeling danger without being able to identify it. Suddenly, smoke blossomed behind a rock on the opposite rim. I saw Harris sag in his saddle before the horse carried him out of sight. Dim by distance came the lagging sound of a shot. Go, Charles. Go, boy. make some target. Probably realizes that by now and he'll really run. How bad are you hit? Oh, flesh wound clean. Just above the elbow here. Help me get this kerchief on it. I'll be all right. Pull your sleeve out of the way. Yeah. He would pick my left arm. How do you know I was a southpaw? That's something we may be asking him right sudden. Are you okay now? Yeah, I do. Pick up his trail on the rim. We'll have to watch sharp. He's going to try to keep that white suit out of sight. Now that we're this close to him. Come on, Red Horse. Show that charcoal out of clock. Come on, Charcoal. Come on, boy. Easy now. Just a little more. Almost to the top. Come on now. Whoa. Had a fat chance of picking up anybody's trail here, Jace. A herd of elephants could have crossed this loose shale without leaving a trace. Maybe. Right, but look here. You see them? Yeah. Ants, a whole trail of them. Ants don't go after anything in this country they can't eat. Let's see what these are having for supper. Here we are. On this piece of shale. Yeah, blood. And then I did nail them. We got a wounded animal on our hands, Jace. May let go at us from behind any of these brush clumps. I don't think he's hurt so bad he won't keep on running. There's just a few drops here. I'm afraid you just creased him. That was pretty long range. Well, it won't be the next time I get him in my sights, I promise you that. I owe him something for this arm. Let's go. He's probably headed for that big mesquite thicket. Yeah, he would. Come on, Red Horse. Up, Charcoal. Hey, hey Jake. Look, out there in the open. His coveralls, he's peeled them off. And there he goes, into that big clump of brush across the clearing. Come on, let's go get him. Hey, wait a minute. Whoa, Circle around below him, Ed. Make a lot of racket like we're still together and hunting blind. Maybe you can flush him back between those big rocks. Okay, I'll try it, Jase. I'll hide charcoal out behind the side of them, and maybe we can rig up a little surprise party for Mr. Bascom when he comes through. But be careful, will you? He won't give you a chance. Don't give him one. Chance? That killer? Just let me get my hands on him. Come on, Red Horse. Hit that rock. Let's go. Here. Easy charcoal. Easy. We go this way. Ooh, oh boy. Under the shade of this rock for you, charcoal. Easy now, boy. Quiet. Quiet. Head down, boy. Shh. Shut up, charcoal. Senor, what, what do you want? We're Texas Rangers. Got him, Jay. Oh, Rangers. Yeah, I got him. But he's the wrong man. Oh, man. What's he doing here? 
Ask him. Senores, I am scared. Padre mía, in this place is nobody. I, I am a lonesome man. Mind my sheep. Then I heard the gun two, three times. When? Now, a few minutes ago. I think maybe it's my friend Diego come from next valley with gun to kill coyote. We have much trouble with coyote here, senor. We aren't looking for coyotes. Where's your clothes? I go to see if it's my friend when this malo hombre, this very bad man, is jumped from the bush. His gun is very big. He took my clothes. He tell me not to move and he run. I stand still till he's gone. Then I run too. Which way'd he go? How do I know, senor? Me, Pedro, I am scared to death. Sorry, Pedro. Forget about your clothes. You're a lucky man to be alive. See, I know, senora. See. You better get some more clothes before that storm hits. You aren't exactly dressed for bad weather. Oh, steady, Charlie. Uh, looks like our surprise didn't come off, Ed. Let's get moving before Bascom builds up a lead on us again. Yeah, let's go, Red Hawk. Yeah, you, Charlie. and I picked up the trail shortly, but Bascom managed to stay ahead of us using a large bag of tricks to keep out of sight, even if he couldn't shake us. When the sun set behind towering thunderclouds, we were working our way down a wide, arid valley, keeping some distance apart. Hey, Jase, here's the tracks again. Pick them up, Charco. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, boy. See him? There they are, heading right down there in the valley. Yeah, fresh as daisies, too. Yeah, no blow sand drifted into them at all. We better try that general call again, Ed. To report opposition? Yeah, look at the direction those tracks are taking. They've been swinging that way the last half hour. Yeah, I noticed that. Headed almost due east now. Bascom's pulling another big red herring on us. He made for Highway 11 long enough for us to report it and set up interception for him there. And, and then he swings straight east for Highway 13. Sort of catches us with our units down, don't it? Bascom's gambling that it does. Yeah, I'll try the call. Unit 902 to unit in range. 902 to unit and range. 902 to unit and range. That's no use, Jace. You can't raise anybody. We're too far out now. The weather isn't helping any either on this lower ground. Looks like we're in for real soaking before night. Yeah. Bascom can't possibly be much ahead of us. Maybe we can tree him before he gets through to the highway. Handle him on our own from here on. You can't risk it, Ed. If he slips us and gets through to make a ride with somebody or steal another car, he'll be gone. Well, I guess here's where we separate, then. I'm kind of out of the running with this here bum arm. Give me the walkie-talkie and I'll double back till I'm in range of the units on Highway 11 again. That's good. It'll ride all right like that. Anything special for the boys? Ask them to request coverage on Highway 13 all the way to Prado. Keep trying till you get through. I'll stick on his trail. I'll have a relay into KDXA in half an hour. Soon as you do, you better head out toward Dry Creek and get that arm looked after. I'll wait till we've got Bascom. Good luck, Jace. Same to you, Ed. Come on, Charlie. Twenty minutes later, the rain struck with cloudburst intensity, bringing complete darkness. But not before John Bascom's tracks led me onto an adobe bench where sheep had been grazing. He'd removed his boots here, and his tracks blended with a maze of other bare footprints left by Mexican sheep herders. I rode on slowly. Suddenly, a small, rain-drenched boy stepped out from the brush. Charcoal nearly ran him down. Ooh, ooh, Charcoal. Steady, boy. Hey, you there. Hey, boy, Nino. Wait. Get up. He ran like a frightened little rabbit. Light winked as the door opened and closed, the door to an adobe shack. As I approached, I saw the blinds were tightly drawn, almost as though to prevent the leakage of any telltale light from the candle burning dimly inside. Oh, Charcoal. Oh, boy. Open up. Open up. Jenny, who are you? Texas Ranger. Come in out of this rain. I want to ask you some questions. Oh, no, senor. I cannot let you in. My husband, he's sick. He's very sick. That's your boy that just ran in here? Yes, senor, my Juanito. He was going to look for the mama goat. Storm, she's bad. You, you frightened him, senor. You gave me a turn for a minute, too. Look, I need a little help. Me, I would do anything for the Texas Ranger. I'm trailing a man, a very dangerous man. He must have passed close to here about the time the rain began. Where is he now? We have seen nothing, Juanito. I mean, nobody, senor. Maybe your husband did then. Anyway, I want out of this rain. Senor, no, you must not. My husband is 
deathly afraid, but her eyes told me she wasn't afraid of me. Of the storm, perhaps, of the sickness in her house, or of the blanket-wrapped man lying on a bunk in the corner of the room with his bare feet protruding toward me. The door was thick. I pushed it inward as far as it would go and stepped quickly behind it. Senor, please! Slide your gun out from under that blanket and drop it, Bascom. The gun, Bascom. Drop it or I'll break your other arm. Drop it! You would be stubborn, Bascom. Now you really got something to be sick about. Do something. I'm, I'm bleeding to death. You won't get off that easy. We're saving you for the electric chair. You got something I can use for bandages, senora? Oh, my arm. Oh, my Here, senor. Gracias. This'll do fine. Oh. How did you know? He was holding a gun on you and the boy, making you do what he said. See, how could you know? Your real husband's a sheep man, isn't he? Yes, senor. He's working near Prado now. Well, look at these bare feet sticking out here. You ever see an honest-to-goodness sheep man with his toes all crowded together from wearing cowboy boots? Better put some water on to heat. I'll need it to patch him up enough to take him in. John Bascom was tried in Live Oak County and found guilty of the murder of two men. On the second day of December 1947 at Huntsville Prison, his sentence was carried out. Death in the electric chair. And now, here again is the star of our show, Joel McRae. One of the pleasures afforded us here in this show is the large number of letters we receive asking for special information about the Texas Rangers. This week we received one, an especially interesting letter, in which the writer said she had heard of an official Rangers prayer and inquired if such a prayer actually existed. It does. The prayer was written by Captain Pierre Bernard Hill, chaplain of the Texas Rangers, and I should like you to hear it. O oh God, whose end is justice whose strength is all our stay. Be near and bless my mission as I go forth today. Let wisdom guide my actions. Let courage fill my heart. And help me, Lord, in every hour to do a ranger's part. Protect when danger threatens. Sustain when trails are rough. Help me to keep my standard high and smile at each rebuff. When night comes down upon me, I pray thee, Lord, be nigh, whether on lonely scout or camped under Texas sky. Keep me, O God, in life, and when my days shall end, forgive my sins and take me in. For Jesus' sake, amen. Joel McRae in another authentic reenactment of a case from the files of the Texas Rangers. Joel McRae will soon be seen in the Universal International Technicolor production, Frenchie. Tonight's cast included Tony Barrett, Herb Butterfield, Barney Phillips, Bill Johnstone, Herb Ellis, and Lillian Bias. This story was transcribed and adapted by Tom W. Blackburn, and the program was produced and directed by Stacy Keach. This is Hal Gibney speaking. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Tonight, Theater Guild on the Air presents Judy Garland in the prize-winning novel Alice Adams, co-starring Thomas Mitchell. Another Sunday evening favorite is The $64 Question, starring Jack Parr. 
Tomorrow on the station of the Chimes, you'll hear Gordon McRae as you're singing Master of Ceremonies on one of his wonderful musical journeys aboard the show train. The Chimes are your invitation to the best in radio entertainment. Be sure to hear Judy Garland next in Theater Guild on NBC. Whitehall, one, two, one, two. This is Scotland Yard. For the first time in history, Scotland Yard opens its official files to bring you the authentic stories of some of its most celebrated cases. These are the true stories, the unvarnished facts, just as they occurred, reenacted for you by an all-British cast. Only the names of the participants have, for obvious reasons, been changed. The stories are presented with the full cooperation of Scotland Yard. Research on Whitehall 1212 is prepared by Percy Hoskins, chief crime reporter for the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. This is the story of Scotland Yard file number 140MR519. And here to brief you is Chief Superintendent John Davidson. Good afternoon. This is the famous Black Museum of Scotland Yard. These two rooms on the lower ground floor of the main building are the repository of, shall I say, mementos of some of our most famous cases, both solved and unsolved. We keep here, as exemplars of the practical art of murder and other crimes, a great many weapons. A not inconsiderable stock of disguises, a large number of miscellaneous objects, more or less directly concerned with the commission of specific crimes. Death marks of a few notable criminals, such as the late Heinrich Himmler, and a great many bullets, some of them with the stain of death still discernible, and more than a few genuinely gruesome objects, portions of human skeletons, things in alcohol-filled glass jars, Every object in here has an unhappy association. And most of them have aided us in solving other puzzling crimes. For the criminal mind is curiously imitated. Now this case, number 140MR519, happened 30 years ago. You may have heard about it. It created a great sensation in the United States. Now, here is the one item that remains. A knife. It was once very sharp, but the blood has rusted the blade. Oh, good afternoon, David. Good afternoon, sir. Now, this is the man who knows more about case 140MR519 than anyone else at the yard. May I introduce Chief Inspector David Aprees of the CID? There was another man who knew a great deal about this case, sir, but he's not with us anymore. Who was that, David? The hangman's up. Mrs. Hildegard Amory was one of the most fascinating women I've ever known. Her husband, Peter James Athelstan Amory, was 32 years old, but everyone who knew the couple thought he, he was at least 10 years older than his wife. Although, in point of fact, he was only four years her senior. From what we know of him... He was dull, moody, and not a very good husband. Except that in the accepted sense of the word, he, he was faithful to her. It's a pity that he had no other recorded virtues. On the night of the 3rd of October, 1922, he was murdered. This is all I had from Detective Sergeant Max Fisher of the Ilford Police Station, who reported it to me. Kensington Gardens, Ilford, sir. Ten minutes before 12 midnight, sir, last night... Stabbed to death by a person or persons unknown, sir. Mr. John Thomason and Miss Elizabeth Poole of 7B Oxford Crescent, Ilford, met Mrs. Amory as she was running down the street screaming. A doctor was fetched who pronounced the man dead. Go on, please, Sergeant. Mrs. Amory remarked to Police Constable Douglas Gregg that she supposed that she would probably be blamed for the husband's death. She'll be at the Ilford Police Station, sir, this morning. 
I proceeded first to the mortuary in Horse Ferry Road to view the body. He had been stabbed untidily three times in the neck. The man of the mortuary said one slash had severed the carotid artery, causing death. No weapon, Sergeant Fisher said, had been found. I went to Ilford for a talk with Mrs. Amory. She's in there, Sergeant. Oh, thank you. Do I go in with you, Chief Inspector? I wish you would, yes, please. Yes, Sergeant Fisher. I have Chief Inspector Apparis of Scotland Yard with me, Jones. May we come in? Mrs. Amory? Let them come in. Thank you. We'll be all right, Jones. Yes, Sergeant. Come in, sir. Mrs. Amory, this is Chief Inspector Apparis. I don't know what more I can tell you, Chief Inspector. I, uh, I'm sorry to be under the necessity of asking you any further questions, Mrs. Amory, but... You understand? Yes, of course. If uh, we might sit down. Oh, please do. <clears throat> you did not see the assailant, you said? No. Peter had gone... Your husband? Hmm? Yes. My husband had gone ahead of me a few steps to unlock the door. All I remember was a kind of black shadow rising up beside the steps, hearing Peter cry out. The other man said nothing. Nothing at all. He just turned and ran away down the street. And you? I'm afraid I was so frozen I didn't do anything for a second. Peter was coughing and crying out. I think I screamed and ran away. Uh-huh. You didn't touch your husband. I put my hand up to him and the blood... I was so... I don't know. I I think I ran for help. I know I was screaming. Those people heard me and called out, and I... You thought your husband was dead? I knew he was hurt badly. You didn't tell us before about seeing the man who attacked your husband, Mrs. Amory. Oh, I thought I did. No, you didn't, Mrs. Amory. I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you a question, Mrs. Amory, which you need not answer. I'm if... sure I have nothing to conceal from you, Chief Inspector. Of course. Why did you remark that they will blame me for this? Or words to that effect? Did I say that? Uncomfortable Greg's report, madam. I don't remember saying uh, that. Why should you say such a thing? Why, if I said it... I was very much agitated, you must understand. Of course, I suppose I must have been thinking that no one else had seen the... the... Murderer, ma'am? Yes. The, the... Sergeant Fisher. Yes? I'll be back at once, Chief Inspector. All right. Had your husband any enemies that you know of, Mrs. Emery? I've been trying to think. Can you think of any other motive? Robbery, perhaps? Oh, I should think that a robber would have run away without attempting to attack. I don't know. Could I... Could I ask you to tell me in your own words... Exactly what happened, as near as you can remember. Peter and I had gone to the Criterion. And we were in rather a gay mood when we came home. Peter said to me, I'll run ahead and unlock... That is a very dark street. Well, usually it's quite bright. But last night, the street lamp... Something apparently had happened to them. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That other couple saw him. Saw who? The murderer. Oh, no. Oh, good. Saw him quite plainly, they said. Did sir. they recognize him? I mean, they're not going to be able to identify him, are they? Catch her, Fisher. She's going to paint. Verbum sat sapienti. If I remember my schoolboy Latin, a word to the wise is sufficient. I'm not at all certain of the degree of wisdom, if any, that I possess. But we had the word right enough. Recognize. Why should they recognize the man? Had Mrs. Amory recognized him? Why should she be so concerned about his being recognized? She returned to her home. Fisher and I quietly began asking questions of the people who knew her. The next-door neighbor answered me. Oh, it's a dreadful thing, sir. 
The poor woman's fair out of her mind. How long have you known the Amherst, sir? Mm, six months. Uh-huh. Had she any friends other than her husband, could you say? Well, sir, the, the parson, I should say. Mrs. O'Malley, who keeps the pastry shop. And, well, uh, I liked her very much. Uh, I'm the dustman, sir. I saw her almost every day on my rounds. What about her husband? I say nothing but good of the dead, sir. Although my private opinion is it served him bloody well right. Why? Well, sir, many's the night I've heard him shouting at the lady something terrible. What about? I never listened to details, sir. I have a great admiration for the poor thing. (laughs) She's very attractive, sir. Do you know anyone else who is of the same opinion? Everybody, sir, except him. God rest his nasty soul. Inquiry of the parson brought more praises of little Mrs. Amory. A most attractive, lively, pleasant young housewife were the exact words. I talked to her employers, a firm of wholesale milliners in Aldersgate Street. I have known Mrs. Amory for a great many years, sir. She's been in our employ since the third year of the war. Oh. Well, what are her duties with you? She is chief bookkeeper and manageress, sir. Do you know anything about her friends? Everybody in this establishment can lay claim to that title, sir. She is universally beloved. We do not make inquiries into the private life of our people, sir. Of course. But do you know any of her friends apart from her colleagues in this office? I have seen her lunching once or twice with a young man. I assume to be a, a younger relative, sir. But I naturally made no inquiries. Well, thank you very much, sir. Quite welcome, I'm sure, sir. Um, I should like to ask you one more question, sir. As you will. Why do you think this young man is a relative? I do not believe I am breaking a confidence. Mrs. Amory has several times received letters from him, posted at various points of call of the Peninsula and Orient Steamship Company. I have seen the envelopes. Well, how does that prove that he's a relation of hers? I have seen the name on the letters, sir. Oh, oh. You looked at the letters? Uh, Inadvertently, sir. And the name was? Westlake. The same as Mrs. Amory's maiden name, sir. I happen to know. Oh, well, thank you very much indeed, sir. Good day. I didn't tell the uh, male milliner that Mrs. Amory's maiden name had been nothing at all like Westlake. As a matter of fact, it was Balderston. I saw the Mrs. O'Malley the dustman had spoken of within two hours after I learned the results of Chief Inspector Aparice's interview with the milliner. Oh, yes, sir. I know Mrs. Amory very well indeed. And her husband? I knew him. Sad affair. I didn't like him, sir. You know a man named Westlake, Mrs. O'Malley? Of course. You do? He was a paying boarder for a few weeks at the Amory. How long ago? Oh, about 18 months ago. He left and went to see Mrs. Amory, said. I don't want you to get the idea, sir, that Mrs. Amory's the type who takes in boarders indiscriminately. She's a genuine lady, sir. Of course. Amory threw him out after a few weeks. Oh? Why? Some tosh about his being too thick with poor dear Mrs. Amory. Such tosh. What takes the brother of a girl who attended school with Mrs. Amory? What arrant nonsense. But Amory was a swine. You know where this Westlake is now? No one's heard of him from that day to this. Not Mrs. Amory even? This young man was merely the brother of a former schoolmate, I told you. Why should she know anything about his private affairs indeed? I agree with you, Mrs. O'Malley. Why, indeed? That was the fourth day after Peter Emery's death. Sergeant Fisher and I struck what bookkeepers are fond of calling a, a trial balance. A, Peter Emery was stabbed to death. With a knife? Practically every sailor carries a sheath knife. Westlake was a sailor. He had been thrown out of the Amory home. He was also accused by the husband of too great familiarity with the wife. It could be a motive. Mrs. Amory was quite concerned about the possibility of the murderer having been recognized. Perhaps she did recognize him. Would she be shielding him? He's the younger brother of a schoolmate of hers. 
Would she be shielding the murderer of her husband? Is he the murderer? Let's ask him. Let's find him first. I had very little trouble finding William Westlake. The telephone call to the offices of the P&O Steamship Company found him for me. Yes, they said they had a steward of that name. Twenty years old, they said. I've been with the P&O for about 18 months. Well, that corresponded with Mrs. O'Malley's recollection of the date of his departure from the Amory's house. What ship? The SS Murray, they said. Where was the Murray, please? It had docked at Tilbury on the 23rd of September after a voyage to the Mediterranean. Well, at least Westlake had been close at hand when Amory had been murdered ten days later. The Murray was still at Tilbury. I paid the ship a visit there. A young sailor loitering at the gangway greeted me. Where you going, mate? This the Murray? Unless they change your name this morning. What do you want? Looking for a man named Westlake. What do you want him for? I want to talk to him. What about? I'm afraid it's none of your business, mate. Ain't it? <laughs> My name's Westlake. Oh, is it? William Westlake? Right, what's yours? My name's Fisher. Never heard of you. Detective Sergeant Fisher of the CID. What do you want? Detective Sergeant Fisher of the CI bloody D. Did you ever hear of a man named Peter Amory? I didn't do anything to him. I didn't ask you that, Westlake. I might have known him. Well, then you won't mind answering some questions, will you? About him? Why? He's dead. Who killed him? I don't know. What do I know about it? That's what we want to find out, Westlake. Well, ask me. Carry ahead. No, you'll have to come to Scotland Yard with me. What if I won't? Better. What will you do if I won't come? Take you. <laughs> come along. There's nobody looking. I could smash you on the head and drop you in the water. See those constables down there on the pierhead? Where? I shouldn't try while they're watching us. Oh. Well, I suppose I'll have to come along of you. But you've got nothing on me. Good enough. Get your sheath knife and come on. What? I've got no sheath knife. I haven't had a sheath knife for... Oh, for ever so long, mister. I haven't got a sheath knife. I lost it. I lost it, I said. Well, come along, then. I'll try and find your knife for you. I had invited Mrs. Hildegard Amory, the bereaved widow, to come to my office at New Scotland Yard from Ilford to consult about some new evidence that had been discovered, I said. She arrived at 11 o'clock, quite composed, with no outward signs of nervousness. I said she was one of the most fascinating women I've ever seen. Blue silk frock, a most fetching hat from the establishment that employed her. Hardly suitable for a recent widow, I remember thinking idly. Great purple-blue eyes. A most charming smile as she greeted me. You must tell me the news at once, Chief Inspector. What has happened? A few facts that I think you should know, Mrs. Amory. Have they identified the man they saw running away? The people who saw the man? A little too anxious, Mrs. Amory, I thought. I said they had not identified anyone yet. Do you think they can? Identify him, I mean. Oh, I'm not at all certain that they can, Mrs. Amory. The street light was out, you know. Oh, I do hope you find him. Did I detect a suggestion? Just a suggestion of triumph in that? We'll see, I said. I haven't the slightest idea who... It's so dark, though. I'm afraid he'll never be identified. I wish you had seen him. We could hold an identification parade... Your telephone, Chief Inspector. Oh, oh, it's ringing, isn't it? Chief Inspector Abreese here. 
got him, sir. Oh. Westlake, I mean, sir. Oh, good, good, old man. Is she there, sir? Oh, quite, quite, quite. Your door open, sir? Uh, forget it, old boy. I'll take care of it, sir. Thank you. That will be excellent. I'll bring him. Thanks very much indeed, old boy. Goodbye. Oh, my dear Mrs. Amory, the, the light from the window is directly in your eyes. I'm so sorry. Please, take this other chair. It faces the other way. Oh, but it's quite all right, Chief Inspector. Oh, I insist, I insist. Please sit here. It'll be much more comfortable. Well, if you must be so thoughtful, Chief Inspector. Please. Thank you very much. There. Now, you see, you're much more comfortable. The light's much better this way. I think there's someone at your door, sir. Oh, really? Who is that? Who is it? The man you wanted to see, sir. Here we go. William! What? They found you! The other one that wanted to see me no. at Scotland Yard. No! Get You're mad, Wesley. No, no, no. Take him away, no. Fisher. No, no, no. Oh, I'll kill her, too. Oh, God, what can I do? Come on, Why did you do it? Do it? I didn't want you to do it. I really think you owe us an explanation, Mrs. Amory. This is what she said. I did not know William Westlake at all. When his sister asked me if he might come and stay with us, I remember him only as a small boy from Norwood when I met him on a holiday with his sister. As a small boy, he was remarkably charming. When he came to live with us, he was still charming. One day, while my husband was away on a short business trip, William told me he was falling in love with me. This is what he said. Of course I was in love with her. In a kid's kind of a way. Old Amory caught us one afternoon kissing in the parlor. He kicked me out. It was an awful row. I said I'd get even. Well, he's dead now, and I'm still alive. She said... I had nothing to do with it. It was his own idea to murder Peter Amory. And he said... Ask her about those letters, Detective Sergeant. I'm a detective. My job is to catch criminals, not to make pronouncements about the state of their minds. <clears throat> Neither is it my job to pass judgment upon anyone. Ask her about the letters, Westlake said to Sergeant Fisher. We did ask her. Hmm? The letters? I thought he destroyed them. Westlake laughed when we told him what she had said. <laughs> them letters will hang her, Mr. Detective. Westlake had been charged with murder and duly warned. The judge's rules in England are almost unbelievably strict regarding what may be said to a prisoner once he had been officially charged. But the boastful ones often say more than they intend to. Neither Fisher nor I made any comment. You can't ever prove that I killed old Amory, gents. You know, nobody saw him get killed. Why, even them people that said they saw me couldn't possibly identify me. Could they? I'm sure I don't know, Wesley. Oh, I know. They can't. Nobody can. <laughs> and, and even if somebody could identify me, which they can't, they'll never hang me. You've been warned, Westlake. So I have, haven't I? Anything I might say might be used in evidence. But she thought I burned them letters or tore them up or something. <laughs> I didn't, gents. Now, what will you do for me? If I show you where them letters are, huh? Nothing. We can promise you nothing, Westlake. Don't you want to hang somebody? Come on, Fisher. Don't you want them? Don't you want them? Well, they'll hang her, I tell you. They'll hang her. 
Don't you want me to give you those letters? Come back! Come back, you! She put me up to it. I should prove she put me up to it, I tell you. She made me do it. She talked me into it. She's the guilty one. I just stabbed the man. The filthy, filthy brute. She thought he was in love with her. She knows better now. Come along. Where are we going? To find those letters. We found them in his locker on the Morea, wrapped in an old newspaper under a pile of dirty clothes, 56 of them, and under them a bloodstained sheath knife, the one that you saw in the Black Museum. The letters were incredible. She admitted in court at the trial that she had written them. Would you like to hear what she had written? Here are typical excerpts from the record of the trial. You said it was enough for an elephant. Perhaps it was, but you don't allow for the taste, making only a small quantity to be taken. Now, your letter tells me about the bitter taste again. Oh, darling, I do feel so down and unhappy. Wouldn't the stuff make small pills coated together with soap and dipped in licorice powder like Beecham's? I'll try again while you're away. And another... I tried the broken glass three times, but the third time he found a piece of it. So I've given it up till you come home. Stop! And... In court at the trial, she was asked why she had written such dangerous letters to Westlake at various points of call. I can still hear her reply. Nobody knows what kind of letters he was writing me. I destroyed them all. He did not destroy mine. And she was asked, why did you incite this man to murder your husband? Her voice was very low when she replied. He was the first man that ever loved me. I was afraid he might meet another woman on one of his voyages. He would love better than me. I could not lose him. I am no moralist. I'm a detective. But it is curious to know that among the effects left in their home at Ilford was a trashy novel by an English author published some ten years before the tragedy occurred. Before Westlake had ever come to live there, while he was still a small boy and she a schoolgirl. Some of the passages in her letters are almost exact duplicates of passages in that book. I don't know. Hildegard Amory and William Westlake were found guilty of willful murder at Old Bailey in June 1923. I don't believe she even heard the verdict. Her mind was failing even then. Westlake went to the gallows bravely. She was carried to the execution shed completely unconscious by warders. And the trap was sprung without her ever regaining consciousness. The hangman is a sinister figure, but even he was sickened. It was the first time in English history that a hangman resigned his job. I don't know. You have heard another in the series Whitehall 1212, compiled from the official files of Scotland Yard. Research is prepared by Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio written and directed by Willis Cooper. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Case closed for this week. Hope you enjoyed our selections this time. You can find more from Tales of the Texas Rangers, Whitehall 1212, Case Closed, and thousands of other old-time radio shows at relicradio.com. Find all the other podcasts there and our Shoutcast stream. Lots to listen to, all available for free thanks to your support. If you'd like to help out, visit donate.relicradio.com and click on one of the links on the website. 
Your support makes it all happen. Thank you, as always, to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed. Thank you.